Welcome to the UX Podcast, where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine. UX introduces a simple formula for personal and business growth based around one principle. We can't solve big, valuable problems alone. Starting with this principle, UX equips and empowers us to pour ourselves into people and systems, scale authentically, and create a life of exponential freedom and impact. And now, let's get started with the latest episode of the UX Podcast. What's up, Rockstars? Matt Johnson back with another fantastic conversation on the UX Podcast. My guest today is Jason Troy. Jason is an executive coach. He's a speaker and trainer, uh, and he is the creator of a game called Cards Against Mundanity. And uh, this is a really, really fun, in-depth conversation. Uh, We talk a little bit about self-awareness and how to expand that. We talk about how to rocket rapport, the the know, like, and trust factor, the very first ingredient in a connected high-performance team, and how to really create an environment where we set the standard, we as leaders of our teams uh, or as leaders of our clients, we set the standard for creating an environment that supports and inspires other people to become more self-aware and get into peak performance. Uh, Jason also shares a little bit about imposter syndrome and how it actually gets a little bit worse the higher you go and why that is, which if you're not you know, running a division of a co- like a Fortune 500 company, you might look at those or you might look at some of the more famous entrepreneurs that you look up to and you might assume that internally they kind of have it all figured out and and they feel confident in who they are and what they're doing and where they're going and we tend to project a lot on other people when it turns out a lot of those people the higher echelons you go the more imposter syndrome they deal with and so we talk with Jason about why that is and so I think there's a huge lesson there for all of us no matter what level we're on that we're probably all going to always going to deal with imposter syndrome in some area of our life or our business and that's okay right? So we talk a lot about self-awareness in this. Um, it, this is an incredible conversation. I'm super, super excited for you to, uh, to dive in. Uh, for those that don't know Jason, uh, he's got a super interesting background. Uh, he spent seven years working in Silicon Valley with leaders like Steve Jobs, Mark Cuban, Reed Hastings. He's got a law degree. Uh, he's spoken in front of major companies, Apple, HP, more, you know, uh, Microsoft, Oracle, Pixar, Yahoo, Nordstrom, AT&T, Sony, a bunch of others. Uh, he's helped clients meet top influencers like Robert, you know, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, Tim Cook, Peter Diamandis, Chris Anderson. He's wrote a number one bestseller that's been number one in four different business categories on Amazon and sold over 50,000 copies. Uh, I could go on. Um, and believe me, if you check him out at his website, jasontroy.com, you'll see what I mean. Uh, he is absolutely um, on point on this podcast. This is a super fun conversation for anyone who is in um, any type of leadership position, um, but also in the position of leading your clients to the results that they're expecting to get from working with you. And so if you don't consider yourself a leader because maybe you don't have a big team or you're not running a team at, at someone else's company, that's fine. This The, the concepts here the concept of kind of looking in the accountability mirror and becoming more self-aware and overcoming imposter syndrome really apply no matter what level of leadership you think you're at because all leadership starts with self-leadership. And so I'm super excited for you to jump into the conversation. So let's do it. Let's jump in with Jason. Jason Troy, officially welcome to the UX Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on the show and speaking to your fantastic tribe. Thank you. Uh, well, we're pumped to have you. So we have a bunch of stuff to get into. We're going to try to keep it relatively short, but we want to talk about high performance and self-awareness and uh, how to uh, kind of tie that link to, you know, imposter syndrome. What, what can we do about that? But just explain a little bit um, the imposter syndrome. So how does that work with people at the, at the highest levels and people that we look up to 
we don't assume or think that they would still be dealing with imposter syndrome. Some of the people at the highest levels of the business world, but your perspective from working with them is that not only do they deal with it, but it actually gets a little bit more prominent uh, and harder to deal with in those upper echelons. It does because I think one topic is self-awareness, right? And if you look at the research, it's 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% of people actually are. So there's a massive gap. The other problem that starts to happen is the higher up the food chain you go and whatever you're doing, the less feedback, candid feedback you get from other people and the truth telling that goes on from the people either even above you and below you on what you're doing, your performance and how it affects other people, your attitudes, emotions. And so the problem is you really don't know what's going on and you think you're doing this great job, right? They did a study was reading not long ago of 5,000 senior executives and they had asked them on 20 different leadership categories how they would rank themselves on a one to a hundred scale. And there are things like communication and managing others and collaboration. And then they also had people that were reporting into them fill that out as well. And out of the 19 of the 20 categories, the senior leaders significantly overvalued their own skills. <laughs> overvalued is like, you know, 70 to 30. Okay. Wow. So it's massive, right? Yeah. It's almost like there's, it's, it's almost like it's black and they see white or it's white and they see black, right? So it's, yeah. it's that far. And I think that really is challenging mm -hmm. because they don't know how to do that. And the other problem is with imposter syndrome is that if you take a look at how people really, you know, the mastery level, it goes from novice to proficient to mastery. And in today's world, there's only so many things that you can master, right? Or some level of it because it takes a lot of work. Yeah. And even getting proficient takes knowledge and studying it. Well, a lot of times we're doing something for the first time and we're like a novice, right? We have very little information. Like I had a CEO who was running a large company and he had never gone through a deal cycle where he was the one in charge to sell it to another private equity group of people, right? So at some level, you're going to have imposter syndrome because you have to act as though you know what's going on and have control over all of it, but it's impossible for you to be able to do that yeah. because you don't know everything, right? Yeah. I mean, there's some people in organization that like, if you show them the balance sheet or what the CFO is doing, they're like deer in headlights and yeah. they've never asked for help and they never really inquired. So they have to act like, oh yeah, I get what's going on the balance sheet. Oh sure, the numbers, like I know in the back of their head, they're like, I have no clue. If I had to go up and present <laughs> things, I would look not even like an idiot. I would be a complete blank stare, yeah. right? And so it yeah, just really and you feel all alone, right? And the other part of it is that, like, you know, even if at, you're at a VP level position, right? Okay. Um, you, are you going to tell your boss, right, that you don't know things and you're worried and like all the rest of the problems and issues going on? Odds are you're not, unless you have an amazing relationship, and those don't happen that often. Yeah. And you can't tell the people you're managing because that's not the right people. And the people in your peer level, maybe you'll share something with someone, maybe you won't. Because a lot of people, again, it's perception, right? And yeah. it's cutthroat because your promotion and your going up is going to depend on how people perceive you, what they Absolutely. think about you. And most times when people think about sharing things they don't know, it's about weakness, right? Yeah. And that's about being vulnerable, right? And that's for men. Weakness is a hotspot. It's a number one issue with vulnerability, right? And women, it's perfectionism. They have to be perfect at everything. 
So we can't let anyone know so we both don't sides have struggle. <laughs> different yeah, reasons, exactly. but both sides struggle with vulnerability for completely different reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then all these things happen. So you're essentially sitting alone with your own thoughts, right? And you know, and I know, and everyone listening, when you listen to the voices in your head, our brains are wired for negativity because they're wired for survival. They're not wired for happiness or growth. So that little voice in your head is going to be negative to keep you safe. So that is the worst person or entity or thing to have a conversation with because it rarely will go the right way. <laughs> That's so true. It's hilarious and sad, but true. Yeah. So we need somebody else to bounce those things off of because if we get into our heads, our head is automatically going to default to the negative, even if we're generally a positive person or we perceive ourselves to be, which that's another thing with self-awareness. Uh, I don't think we recognize that part of our brains, right? The part of our brain that's wired for survival, that there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to recognize that our brain is not going to always be super supportive and be wired for success, especially when we're doing things at the novice level and trying to lead other people where they need to see us as kind of being forceful and visionary and know exactly where we're going. Uh, so that's an interesting thing about self-awareness. Uh, let's go back to that for a second, though. How do you define self-awareness to begin with? How do you know well, whether you're self-aware or not? I think, one, it's taking a look at your internal uh, thoughts, patterns, and behaviors, and then understanding the landscape around you, right? The emotions, of what other people are feeling, what they're thinking, what's going on. And be able to navigate that. And the problem tends to be is that people can't do, they haven't done either one because mm -hmm. they haven't looked in their accountability mirror and dug really deep. And what I find from doing things with people, the problem stems from, I'll just give you an example. So probably six or eight months ago, I had a client who's a CEO of probably a half billion dollar company. And he, he knew his executive team was doing well, but he knew that they could be doing better and he was getting external pressure to perform better, right? Well, but he couldn't figure out why he was working on it for a while. So, you know, I went in and I started to talk to his team to ask questions about his interaction with them. And I had literally a five or 10 minute conversation with them. And literally all of them said to me, he's not listening. He's not really taking our feedback. He doesn't really know us as people either. And I thought that that was really interesting. And one of the self-awareness challenges that I found is that if you go and take that feedback, right, which is often done as part of a 360 review, and if you go into the CEO, and I would have pointed these out to him directly, the problem with that is since our brain is wired for negativity and to keep us safe, if I tell him that, I am telling him that he's broken and needs to get fixed. Mm. Two things happen. One, no one wants to be a home repair improvement project, right? <laughs> Two, because we're wired for survival, if you tell me I'm broken, we go back to caveman days. If someone yeah. told you were broken, they would kick you out of the group and you would die. You'd be eaten by animals. You couldn't get food. Yeah. You wouldn't have shelter. I mean, all the rest of these things. So what happens is you're very resistant and you will do something, but in the back of your head, you're saying, I'm going to get those sons of bitches for telling, you know, someone else that I'm broken and thinking like that. And they would also mm -hmm. say to me things like, oh, Jason, well, maybe my team wasn't as good as I thought they were. Oh, maybe they're not that committed. They would making all of this stuff because you offload the blame and you don't take accountability because you don't want to be broken. And so how you have to sidestep that is we're all pattern oriented. We live by patterns and everyone else's. And the more you can recognize patterns, 
the better you'll be. It's just like a computer program, right? It's a one or zero. That's how computers do the job that they're doing, right? They recognize things and then they give you an output and that makes us faster as human beings. Well, you have to do the same thing with them. So instead of tell, doing that and talking to him, I started to ask him questions about, tell me about growing up. What was your childhood like? And he w told me uh, he grew up in a house of six people. And so then I asked him a question. I said, so tell me the first time you remember that you had to get your parents to listen to you. What did you do? And he told me a story that he needed them to go to some grade school function. And they were at the kitchen table and he elbowed his sister and brother so hard on the side, they fell off their chairs. <laughs> and then he told his parents, right? And his parents said yes. And then my next question to him was, so do you think looking back, there would have been another way to get their attention? And his answer was no. So at that point, right, he learned that not listening got him what he wanted. And if he would have listened and been patient, they wouldn't have gone, right? right? And he couldn't have done that. And I found several other instances of that. Yeah. So then I approached him with, you realize that just like a computer program, like a one or a zero, the pattern that you've been doing your whole life is that not listening has gotten you what you wanted and helped you become the successful person you are. Yeah. But the challenge is like everything else, it doesn't always stay the same. Yeah. And now it's sabotaging your success and your company's success, right? And mm -hmm. that's pretty critical. So you have a choice now. You could be right or you can be happy, successful, and fulfilled. <laughs> what do you want to do? Now, in that instance, everyone always says the same thing to me. Oh, Jason, I didn't realize I was doing that. I, I, didn't, I would never want people to feel like that or be like that, right? And so then we have to do a small one to two degree switch. I literally wrote in a post-it note for him some things to do. And I said, don't do anything not on this because I want to prove to you how easy this stuff will be for you to do. I wrote things down like talk last in meetings, ask more questions, get to know the people on your executive team better. And a few other things that were simple. And I said, the beginning of every day, read this for 15 seconds and just do these things. Mm-hmm. Well, in 30 days, it was like a miracle worker. Everything turned all around because he totally bought in it. Then he got evidence quickly that it worked. Right. And he wanted to do more because he got positive feedback. Yeah. And we never got to the broken part because there's no point to that. So we sidestepped the negative part of the brain and we got into the next level where we just implemented it. Yeah. Love it. So, so many things you could potentially dig into that, um, but just a couple, couple things I wanted to go deeper on. So the, the one or two degree change. So I think I know what you mean by that, but go a little bit deeper on that and explain for people like, because when you're dealing with behavior change like that, there's something for that for us to learn in how we can kind of slowly turn the ship of our own behavior. But as leaders also, there's something we can learn how to like kind of deal with our followers. So when you say a one or two degree kind of change, what do you mean? It's very small. You don't have to do some massive overhaul that is going to take months or years to do. They're really subtle changes that you can do that will be implemented really quickly, and you can get evidence very quickly that it's working or not working. Gotcha. Small, very small, doable, tactical changes. And then like you said, you get that instant or pretty close to instant feedback and then that gets their buy-in. So you skip the part where you confront somebody about what you think is broken, 
and you avoid triggering the negativity and ask a lot of questions so that partially it starts to dawn on them that, hey, this is an area where I might want to work on. And then you suggest you know, some very small tactical changes. So that makes sense. I like that. And it works well. Because the other part of it that happens with self-awareness is we often start to ask ourselves questions like why. Why did this happen to me? Why did I do something stupid, right? But that is the wrong way because it gets into the emotions and the survival and negative part of our brain. Yeah, the question you ask is the what questions. Okay. So what happened, right? Like the Navy SEALs do after every mission. I've got yeah. a friend of mine that was on SEAL Team um, six, or seven, 6 with Chris Kyle, the American yeah. sniper. And, you know, they went through the same standard questions after every mission. Mm -hmm. You know, what were, what were intended results? What were the actual ones? We did do well. What didn't we do well? And what do we take moving forward? And they didn't make it about something that were emotional or why questions. They did it to get better. And they objectively looked at the information and then they implemented it without having the blame game in there and having to be perfect. The point was we want to make the next mission has to be better and we have to find ways to constantly improve no matter what it is we have to do. And when everyone buys into that, then you don't get into the other part of it and you heighten your self-awareness because you're asking the right questions and you're approaching it in a much different way and you're creating the environment where that is just institutionalized in every person's head. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where I feel like we as leaders can get better at creating an environment that kind of supports and inspires people to go to get better self-awareness and, and relieve them of some of that imposter syndrome. Uh, one of the things I admired about one of my mentors uh, that I, I actually used to work directly for him, so I've seen it in action a lot. Anytime there would be something came, that came up with staff where the performance wasn't, like you didn't get the result that you wanted, whatever that was, whether the client was unhappy or not, or whether it was just like a project wasn't progressing the way, the way that he wanted, the first question was never, why did they do that? It was not like, you, to your point, it was never a why question. It was, a, it was also a what question. Like, did we follow the system? What was the, you know, what, what were they doing? What were the facts? Let's get, gather the facts first. And it was always very objective and stayed yeah. as much away from the emotional subjective and especially stayed away from reading any intent into what was going on always separate out the emotion, the intent and from the behavior. And let's just focus on what happened and what, what exactly can we fix? And then a lot of times it was like, what, Hey, what can we adjust about the environment or the system so that the behavior, like we don't have to deal with the, the human behavior part as much. How can we just build the system so that the system changes the behavior and not vice versa? Uh, and I really love that approach because I, I seen the effect that it had on people. You yeah, know, like, that's the looking at the root rather than the leaf on the tree. Yeah. The other part of it is when you look at things objectively, that's a core component of psychological safety. And Google did a whole research study called Project Aristotle over two years that looked at what was creating their highest performing teams globally. And they found that the only single thing across every high performing team was psychological safety. Mm, psychological safety. Yeah, that's, um, that's and a, good. And a component of that is how you manage risk and how you talk about risk and how you objectively put it back into a process and a system with the people around you because that way people can take risks, right? Because inherent mm -hmm. in risk- You mean like the risk of failure. Yeah, as I yeah, said. Right? Because yeah. failure and risk are hand in hand. 
Mm-hmm. And so, because innovation, there's no one that can do everything the first time and get it right. I mean, no. that's impossible. There's no one who does it right. Everyone has a pivot, but we don't talk about all the pivots that someone do. We just look at the end result, right? Yeah. We look at the Facebook news feed or the ESPN highlight reel, and all you see is the end. Yeah. We don't look at all the other pieces that require them to get to that point, right? Well, yeah. you have to then look at risk differently to maximize the team the performance, everything else in order to get to that point significantly faster, right? And like you were talking about, that person created a great environment where people could maximize their potential Mm -hmm. because it wasn't about what they did wrong. It was about what do we do now moving forward, right? And you were accountable for that part of it and responsible for implementing and taking next level. That you weren't about the blame game and trying to be a perfectionist because then that would undermine exactly what the point of the conversation you were having with him and he was having with the team. Yeah, which, I mean, to me, what we're talking about today really drives home the point that the way that we internally deal with failure, immediately, like as soon as we're put into an environment or we build an environment around ourselves where we lead other people, the way that we deal with failure internally immediately gets externalized and it bleeds off onto everyone else and it becomes how we deal with failure as as a team so uh, there's a lesson there i think for anybody that has even if it's just freelancers working for you or or you're you're in an environment where you have to influence other peers and colleagues to do the things that you want to do to get a project done all this stuff applies this is not for vp and ceo level only it's all about how we deal with failure internally because then that affects how we relate to other people and you'll get significant you'll rise to the top or you'll build this business significantly faster if you're doing it that way because you'll be able to outflank people that are significantly bigger than you are because you will be a fine-tuned team whether it's you and freelancers or you and a small team you can essentially, and I've seen this a lot of instances where businesses of five people will consistently beat other ones of 50 or 100. Yeah, which makes total sense, which is right. fun because then it's, yeah, there's, for, for those of us that are in the wild, wild west of entrepreneurship, so to speak, uh, it's fun to think about the fact that we can outflank much, much bigger organizations. So that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about cards against mundanity. Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, so... What's really interesting, and this just piggybacks right off of this, a few years ago, I was looking into how do you maximize team performance and engagement? Because every person I'm dealing with has a team, right? Now, the team could be an internal team of people, a freelance team, and the team I use is prospects, customers, any third party, right? It's the Mm -hmm. total ecosystem that you have and that you're involved with. And the key thing is how do you create the highest performing environment so everyone can thrive? And then obviously it's your self-interest because then you're gonna be really successful Mm -hmm. and you're gonna create raving fans and advocates for you, which is going to do wonders for your organization. And the problem I always had was every time I read something, I thought it was all mythology, right? I mean, everyone seemed to back out success. They talk about culture, right? But then when you get into how people are really doing it, the details are very sparse and there's no do this, do that, do something else. Sort of like a supply chain or manufacturing plant. Like you should be able to do this, this, and this and get an output. But all I found was some mythology of like, well, we did this because we had these people and then you find out it's a cult of personality, basically. Yeah, exactly. Right. But then 
then they can't do it anymore. And I thought to myself, well, that's always a cheap excuse that people really aren't taking. And they're not doing the research and doing the work. Mm -hmm. And so I started to do frontline research by talking to people, really digging into deep university research, and then going out and watching teams. And I watched a lot of sales teams, and I went to Fortune and Forbes top 10 workplaces to watch them because I was like, well, that's as good a list anyone because at least someone's ranking them in terms of a better environment than something else, right? So I figured, okay, we'll go and try that. And I wanted to see what were the 1% teams doing that the rest of them were not because I felt to myself, why can't you essentially replicate what they're doing at the top and bring it back down? Because then if the only reason that couldn't be is if these people were all all all-stars and the rest of the people were not. But then, okay. right? but then I, go, I went to Google's research, and if you look at their research, they found, um, and all the research I found out there, that traditionally, if you have a bunch of all-stars, and then you have A and B players, the A and B players will almost always outperform the all-stars, right? And you saw that back mm-hmm. with the dream team, the second dream team that blew up in the Olympics, and they had one of the worst runs ever and got so embarrassed um, because they, I think they got out, they didn't, they didn't play the gold medal game. I, I think they played those. This, what was this, 96? No, this was after. That was after the okay. Jordan team. That was the next mm. one after that that blew up really gotcha. bad. And so, and one of the problems is when you get all these people, smart people in a room, no one wants to compromise. No one wants to listen to someone else because they all think they're right. That's right? interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so it's really difficult to get that because the person managing that has to manage all those personalities. And that mm-hmm. in itself is really, really difficult. So when Google did this research, they thought the same thing, education, background, et cetera. And then just talk about it, psychological safety, right? And yeah. other characteristics on the teams, but without psychological safety, there was nothing. And I thought to myself, there has to be something there. And a lot of the research correlated with that with team performance in one way or another, it went to trust and vulnerability. So then when I was looking at these top 1% teams, I saw some commonalities in them. You know, one, if the leader asked a question, all 10 people would respond. And maybe they would, some would talk more than others, but they would all give ideas. Some of them maybe weren't the best ones actually, but they still spoke. And that no, that's point, the point. That's the point is that the people with the worst ideas. Yes should feel the psychological safety to speak up. If they don't, if they, if they're not speaking up and people aren't giving bad ideas, then you know, there's like, there's a layer of holding ideas yeah. back because there's no safety. Right. And you'd see less and less as you go down yeah. in the percentage group. You'd also see things like they would know each other in a deep personal level. Like people there would know everything about everyone else. They wouldn't be mm-hmm. friends necessarily, right. but they would. And how that would help, you know, pet peeves, hot buttons, how to support someone if they're having a difficult time outside of work because that's affecting their performance and the team's performance, right? Mm-hmm. They would also do things like they're very curious. They would read a lot, watch, yeah. listen to podcasts, right? Like this, mm-hmm. they would go to conferences and they bring that information back. And there were just some other things that they were doing that you saw less and less out of the other teams. And I saw that consistently in every place I went. Yeah. It was almost like now I told people I could go and watch people not see the numbers and tell you how good that team is yeah. without even, because it's almost a cookie cutter. But then when you talk to the people running those teams, they have no idea. They would give you every excuse around that. Oh, these people are smarter. They work harder. Right. Okay. Which is probably true at some point, 
But yeah. part of it is I ask, I ask them, well, when sales presentation you're doing and maybe you don't know an area, what would you do? And they're like, oh, well, I know that Jim or, or Jenny knows this really well. And so I would get them to help, my pre, help me in my presentation. So the presentations were better because they would just do that for each other. And yeah. they would have no quota. They were, they were helping people, but they were not attached to an outcome because they knew that each person would help them. But as you went through other teams, you wouldn't see that as much. Gotcha. So, of course, right? Better presentations, better knowledge, mm-hmm. better, you're going to win more deals. I mean, of course you are, right? Yeah. And so oh, yeah. it's sort of like this stood out. So then when I started to look at this, I came across another study by Professor Arthur Aaron who went in to look at interpersonal closeness. And his thing was like, you have to find a way for people to become best friends, like snapping your finger, or to be able to fall in love super quickly. That was his theory, right? Okay. He did some experiments, and one of them that he did was he got grad students, 54 of them together in a room, Mm-hmm. And he, they were complete strangers. They didn't know each other, so they vetted them out. They had them sit down, and the only thing they knew before they were sitting down was their name because they introduced each other. That was it. Yeah. They sat down and asked each other 36 questions over 45 minutes. And these questions were very vulnerable for the most part. They were questions like, tell me three things that you like about me which would be really hard if you don't really know someone in the span of 45 minutes and you don't really get to talk that much back and forth. So, you know, very little knowledge. Hmm. And so what was crazy at the end of this thing, because these studies are so poorly written that you have to read them several times to look at the conclusion (laughs) is that the thing that stood out as I was reading this, as I was reading it towards the end was he put, 30% of the people that they surveyed before and after said that the relationship with this stranger was the closest relationship in their life. Whoa. Get that. 30% of the people said the person sitting across from them who was a complete stranger 45 minutes ago now was the closest person in their life that knew more information than anyone there. And they've replicated the study since 1997, dozens and dozens of times across geographies mm. and age groups and everything. And the result set stays about the same. And the reliability thing on the surveys he had is like 0.9%, which is super high, right? Yeah. So the correlation is uncanny. So I thought to myself, how crazy is this? Mm-hmm. Is this really going to work? So then I went and got a friend of mine who I didn't know really well and I asked him to get seven people that he knew decently well, but not exceptionally well to go to dinner. And we were going to play a game and I was going to take his questions and play them, but play them in a group. Cause I wondered, would this work in a group? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want people to really know each other as well. And I didn't want to know the person as well. And I wanted someone else to get the people. So I wouldn't be doing any like self-selecting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I went to dinner and I planned like an hour and a half dinner. And I was like, I had plans after this with other friends. And I was like, oh, you know, we'll get through maybe 10, 12, 13 quit the most. And then we'll, I'll just leave and great. Well, okay. an hour and a half comes. I try to get up and literally people are grabbing me and pulling <laughs> me down saying, you are not leaving until you finish these questions. <laughs> so I was there for over three hours. And, wow. I did, and I did this two more times like this. And I said to myself, if I'm doing this three times and it's the same, there has to be something there. Yeah. So I sat down and I realized that one of the keys are is 
you build trust super fast, skyrocketed. Okay. If we can skyrocket vulnerability. All right. Now I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess here because I was just reading a really great book on the plane here to plane home. The storytellers something about storytelling. Anyway, the point being, I, I think they've, they've proven now through research that they know exactly what chemical in our brain releases when we feel a bond with another person. So I'm yes. guessing what's happening in this environment where you're getting people or one-on-one -on -one or whatever, what's happening when you're asking these questions is I'm guessing it's leading to stories from their past, especially childhood or something like that. Right. And then it, the, part, it, part, it partly is partly. Yeah. And the key thing is here. So here's two instances where to help people figure out what this is. So okay. we've all had a moment, right? I mean, I know that you've had this where you've met someone in the first five or 10 minutes and you're like, boy, I felt like I've known this person all my life or I feel like I know them exceptionally well. Well, if, when that happens, if we have videoed it, what happened is, is that someone was vulnerable and shared something, no matter how small. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it unconsciously tells the other person it's safe to share, otherwise you wouldn't have shared. And then right. they stair step it up and then you mm -hmm. keep doing this at a, at a huge rate. So you take that one first conversation, you do what most people do in 20 or 30 conversations in the first mm -hmm. one. And that's why that that happens. Now, on another example would be think about the best team you've ever been on. Like everyone out there, think about the best team you've ever been on, either work, personal, in school, a sports team. Think about the emotions that went on. Think about what you actually accomplished, right? Think about the obstacles that you overcame and think about how you view those people. There was huge vulnerability in those moments and you celebrated those and there was massive levels of trust. Like you felt you could do anything and that person would have your back and you would believe it with complete, utter certainty. Well, that's exactly what you have to do. And the key thing with vulnerability is the challenges is that a lot of vulnerability is situation or event oriented, meaning that having a tough conversation with someone, maybe a health scare, right? Maybe, you know, a company has to have a tough conversation with employees or a CEO has to share things that's difficult, right? Well, those are moments. But one of the things that we have full control on is self-disclosure. Okay. You hearing things about yourself and asking questions is something we can do in any environment. Oh, gotcha. It's not, yeah, it doesn't have to be situational by an, an external force, like forcing it on you. No. And yeah. one of the, so when I started to do this, I took the questions and I went to a coffee shop and I started asking people these questions because I wondered if I could do this and just go up to people and mm -hmm. take it right from jump. Well, <laughs> the problem is, is that, I started doing it and I freaked out some people and I had to tell them that it was an experiment and I showed them that I was doing it and they were like, oh, and I asked them how they felt and they felt very uh, violated to say it lightly, right? And they felt like, who is this guy asking me these questions who, after he said hi, started to do this. So hmm. then what I did was I put it into a game. Okay. And I realized that when we put it in a game, it puts us back to being little kids. Yep. And then everyone says yes. Mm. And I wanted to make it off of Cards Against Humanity because mm. I was like, okay, well, it's another anchor, right? And adults right. have played that or know about it. And so I went and did this. And then 
I put it into a game and then I went on tested out and the first person group I tested it out in, I went to a company and I didn't know this until a day before I was going to conduct this as my first group is that there were two women in this group that hated each other. Like hate is an understatement. Like they were, you know, like the super friends. It was like Superman and kryptonite. Like it was hate. <laughs> <laughs> and they could barely be in the same room. And now I had to go. And then they told me that, yeah, the it was, company was essentially falling apart because they needed these people and yeah. they couldn't figure out how to come together. And I'm like, oh, great. No pressure. Yeah, exactly. All this research about to blow up. I'm going yeah. in there sweating, didn't sleep all <laughs> night long, had nightmares. And we're like, this is going to be horrible, right? Okay. And so I went in. And, you know, we at, went around the group and asking questions. And then I asked the question, that was, tell me about the biggest loss you've had in the last five years. And one of the women said their mother and gave in information. And then the yeah. other one said their dog. And obviously, they're not the same, right? Everyone knows that. But somehow or another, that galvanized them. Because one of the things I didn't understand was, it's not just the question and the answer that people bond on. It's the emotional layer. That's actually the secret. And that loss somehow galvanized them. And I saw them walk out of the room and I overheard them talking about this question. That's how I knew that it stood out. Yeah. Well, I found out later in the week they went to lunch. And then a month later, they were actually friends, like social friends. Wow. Right? I mean, think about this. Think about in your life. Think about anyone you hate and 30 days later actually becoming real friends. Even if it didn't happen, imagine what would it take for you to get to that point? Right. You realize at that point how great that this was. And as I was doing it in larger groups, the other thing I started to find is I did it at Google in front of a group of 300 people was that it's spread throughout all the people. As long as they know that it's going on, they just assume that the people were in their group. They, okay. They just assume the people are in they, the, they, they, the they, common this, bond. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. common bond. And they would treat them just like they were in the group. Hmm. And the other thing that's really interesting is that I've had people ask me, well, what if people don't want to do it or people want to opt out? Yeah. I have had very few people opt out. In fact, the people that have opted out, out of 10,000 people that I know that have played it, a couple of people have opted out. They've quit within two weeks. Uh, oh, they quit. They, the actually, they put in their notice, but actually they had, they had another job. And so they right. were out the door. Yeah. And the other probably five people quit within the next couple days after doing the game and they were all the worst employees. And so every client actually thanked me because I just paid for the workshop by not having to pay them severance because they actively quit. Wow. That's hilarious. And they got rid of the worst people and they didn't have to do it and they didn't have to come up and waste all the time. Right. So it actually even paid. That's more. right. There was actually an ROI. Company, like employee transition specialist. Like bring me in. Exactly. We'll sure. <laughs> I'll get rid of them. Who you don't want, right? It's pretty right. funny because one of the last people I did it for, they actually told me how much they were going to pay. And I'm like, you got an ROI after people quitting and not, it, it didn't even matter what happened in the group. Mm -hmm. There's actually a financial <laughs> ROI at that point. So, although I think, but it's been very few because people get in yeah. there and they want to share because they want to belong and connect. Yes, exactly. I was just going to say that. Like it, it feeds that very primitive human desire to be understood. Like we want, we long to be in a team of people, especially when there's like this collective goal that we're all chasing. We want to, we want the other people in the team to understand us 
um, yeah, it's very, very deep and primal. So that makes sense that it taps right into that. Yeah, and then you can use it with cost. I mean, I've, I've people use it with existing customers. They just say, hey, I've got a game to play and I want to get to know you better. And then mm -hmm. that helps understand them and their environment and they want to play mm -hmm. it more. You can do it with a prospect right at the end of the conversation, ask to play a question or two. And most people are going to play it. And if they do, you'll rocket rapport yeah. and trust and likability because you'll get to know them better than the other people and you're going to stand out in your mind because the key component of trust, there's sincerity, reliability, competency, and caring. Okay. And if you think about it this way, caring is by far the most important one because we've all okay. had people in our life that have not been sincere, but they know they've cared about you and you've kept them in their life. They, the same thing with competency or reliability, right? You people that may be super late, but if you know they really care about you, you give them extremely long leash. But mm -hmm. someone who's really sincere but doesn't care at all about you, right? Or yeah. really reliable, but if they don't care, or you know, really competent, but they don't really care, you don't have the same feeling towards them. So when you so can show caring, people, caring is kind of the first ingredient. Yeah. To what? What like that? To that emotional bond, that feeling yes. of connectedness. Yeah. Okay. Because here, think about it this way: if you go and ask, like I did this for a client of mine for a customer conference, I had I had them have all of their customers come up that were at the event and there was actually like 45 of them and I gave them one minute and mm -hmm. I had them ask a question like what is the most important lesson you've learned in the last year not about the, using the product but in but their lesson you should see at the end of the event they sold 30 percent more out of the event than they thought they were going to hmm. because they all the people bonded. The customers loved the event and they raved about it. And they, if you really look from last year to this year, they didn't do that much different. Hmm. But what happened is, is they found other people in the group that was like, oh my God, that's so great because it, I learned that or I had this problem. And it created this connection because people started to share and, it, and because they're that vulnerable, it looked like they started to care, right? And all of this went on. So they created this immediate bonding. And if you think about, I took this out to people also that are really, really good speakers, like mm -hmm. 10 times the speaker that I am, right? <laughs> and I showed them the game, like, oh my God, we do that in every presentation. That's how we can sell so much because we create that connection. Um, that's it's interesting. the same in great salespeople. Yeah. You're like, this is exactly what we do. Not per se doing it this way, but mm -hmm. we do the concept and the result set at the end is the same. Yeah. But it's hard to tell other people this because we do it because of our, in our brain and how we think, but we can't make it translate it into something real. Yeah. So now you can, because once you play this and see it around people, it's pretty amazing what goes on. And when you gamify it, then people just don't have resistance, right? They, yeah. they just share everything. Like when I was at Google, a couple of the groups, within five minutes, people, there were a couple of groups, people crying. Oh, wow. Good Lord. Right. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of surprised. That like, connection now. That's yeah, that, that'll make for a very successful workshop, presentation, whatever, like anything that inspires that kind of emotional yes. connection. And, and it's because inside of that, you just go. And when the first person goes, then it goes well. And then usually if I'm doing this and they're leaders, right, I make them, I, they share first. Because okay. if a leader shares first in front of people, right. then everyone thinks it's safe. And yeah. then they'll completely open up, right? So there are a few little nuances in this that work better, but the concept works 
in any environment. And you can even use it by yourself, right? You take people to lunch you work with, right? You could yeah. anything and start asking them and getting to know them. And yeah. it's going to make your job way easier because, yeah. right? Think about it this way. The people that you work with that you like and care about the most, you have more leeway with them. If you make a mistake, they're not, they're not as irate. Right. So they recover from it a lot quicker, right? Even, even think about the best clients that you have or anyone has, right? Like the relationship is way different and there's a way more leeway and it's way easier to work with them than it is with people who are not. Yes. Right. So yeah. this is in your self-interest to do this, right? And your benefit, not just the people around you or everyone else. Yeah. So it's Love uh it's pretty fascinating to go through this. So yeah, it totally is. Uh, yeah, I love, I love this conversation. Um, Jason, where can people go? Where can they learn about the game, connect with you, kind of get into your world? So they can go to my website. It's Jason and then it's treu.com, jasontreu.com. And they can download the game directly at cardsagainstmundanity.com. And it's all free. So they can get the FAQ and everything else and get rocking and rolling in five awesome. minutes. So. Love it. That's fantastic. Very, very cool. Well, Jason, what's next on the horizon for you? What's, uh, what's the big push for your own personal consulting, speaking, coaching business? Uh, you know, it's doing a lot more coaching with groups, this team building game, getting in culture, a lot of leadership management workshops, a lot of speaking in 2019, mm -hmm. more podcasts like these and mm -hmm. possibly another book. It's, it's hard. It's, uh, I wrote one and the second one is getting harder for me to sit down and actually start to go and do that because it's such a, an endeavor, but it'll happen at it some is. point. Yeah, exactly. Well, awesome. Well, I hope anybody that's listening, if, if you know, uh, if you're speaking at a corporate event and you think Jason would be fantastic, um, make sure to reach out to him and connect. I know that's where a lot of kind of these types of, of speaking events come from is referrals from other speakers. So yes. make sure to keep Jason, like to keep you in mind, because I know there's a lot of people in the audience that do that sort of speaking uh, and are traveling and doing a lot of training and coaching, consulting, stuff like that. So make sure to keep you in mind for referrals. But Jason, this was fantastic. Super fun discussion. I've already got some things in mind, some introductions that I want to make for you. We'll talk about that in a second, but we appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Hey, well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, I believe that clarity releases energy. So I hope that this episode creates clarity for you by laying out a path forward in your business. Now, if you're interested in starting a podcast like this to help you break into a new industry or to establish yourself as an authority in a niche market, let's talk. We have a complete done for you podcasting service that is my agency that I'm building and growing. And I'd love to talk to you about what we can potentially do for you. You can learn more at pursuingresults.com to get a sense of what our service is all about. And if you're ready, if you're really seriously thinking about starting a podcast, I'm happy to brainstorm your ideas and talk about the positioning of your podcast within the market, something that you can take away whether we end up working together or not. So you can grab a time on my calendar for a podcast brainstorm call at bookjohnson.com. That is bookjohnson.com. I just want to thank you again for listening to the show, for leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes, and more importantly, for investing your time, your energy, your attention into the show. It really means the world to me that you would do that. So again, this is the UX Podcast, where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine, and we'll see you on the next episode.